Good morning, everybody. Uh, so we're going to be continuing a series that um, we've been doing as kind of a year-long, once-a-month series, looking once a month at the book of Numbers. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, you don't need to turn there. Um, it's a section of scripture that tells us that the events of the wilderness, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, are meant to be instructions that we relate to. It says that these things happen for our, our instruction as examples for us. So these aren't just stories. They aren't just historical things that happened. But there are lessons hidden within these events that are meant to equip us in our faith, embolden our relationship with God, help us to navigate through sin and temptation and understand concepts of righteousness with greater clarity, um, and Numbers as well, in terms of, book of the, books of the Bible, tends to be one that I think is more overlooked. Uh, there's a lot of sections of the book of Numbers that maybe even in the sermon series so far you've not really heard much about or heard taught before. Um, so a point in the series has been to mainly highlight just the value of books of the Bible that we may in our reading either skim through, not think much about, but they do hold great treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So in Numbers 21, what we're going to see throughout this chapter is God rescuing his people in a variety of ways. Uh, this chapter transitions um, from a time that was very discouraging in chapter 20, when Miriam dies, Aaron dies, Moses is told he's not going to enter the promised land, and so it just seems like a very solemn, discouraging time frame here. And chapter 21 really picks up the momentum, and I think there's a lot of encouragement that God gives his people here before the next major events with Balaam, Balaam and Balak, um, starting in chapter 22. But just kind of as an image reference again, um, Israel is marching through the wilderness, and every time they would rest, they were kind of organized in a military array. So they aren't just like a large, disordered congregation, but they were organized very strictly by tribe, with the tabernacle structure at their center, the priests around them. And so this would have been two to three million individuals marching through the wilderness in a place where life was simply not possible to sustain at all. And other nations would be able to see this from a distance, that this very large amount of people was just surviving for decades out in the wilderness. And now slowly, in the 40th year now, so this would be the end of their 40-year wandering. In chapter 33, verse 38, it mentions that when Aaron died in the previous chapter, that marked the 40th year of their wandering. So now time has slowed down. Numbers is a very large book. Uh, it's got over 30 chapters, so there's a long way to go still till the end of this book. Then we've got the entire book of Deuteronomy, the beginning of the book of Joshua. So there's still a lot of time left in terms of text uh, dedicated to the wilderness, but not a lot of time in terms of um, history. We're, we're slowed down here. So it's the 40th year, and Israel is no longer just wandering in circles. They are on their final march where they are going to their destination. So they're marching with purpose at this point, and as this is happening, in verses 1 through 3, the king of Arad uh, comes against Israel. So let's, let's reread this, and then we'll talk more about it. Numbers chapter 21. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Ethirim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. 
So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. So Canaanites came against them from the southern region of the Palestine area. Uh, If you remember, as you should, Canaanites were the group of people that God had destined for destruction. So Israel was to conquer the entirety of the land of Canaan, everybody within it. And so these Canaanites, um, I've got a map here that may be helpful. The Negev is kind of southwest of the Dead Sea Israel is by, if you can read that, Kadesh, Mount Hor, on their way south. They've got to pass around Edom. And so the Canaanites are coming from that northern region and going south to attack Israel. And if you remember in chapter 14, maybe helpful just to turn back there a few pages back, at the end of Numbers chapter 14, when God sentences Israel to the 40 years in the wilderness, um, they had failed to go in when they arrived there the first time because they were um, afraid of how fortified and how strong the people were. Once God had said, you will die in the wilderness, there's no going around it. You're going to be in the wilderness 40 years. This whole generation is going to die off. In Numbers 14, 29 through 45, 39-45, if I can get my words straight, uh, The people determine that they're going to go into Canaan without God's approval to try to fight against the people. And in verse 44, they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp after Moses had directly warned them not to go to battle here. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. So this would be the same place where they had been defeated in the past because they went up without God's approval. So the place where they had previously suffered defeat becomes instead now a place of victory. Some lessons just very briefly here before we get into some of the other sections of chapter 21. In 1 John 4, uh, that should be chapter 3, it's 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And so the problem in chapter 14, again, as the Canaanites, I think, serve a parallel, more of a spiritual battle we face against our enemy, the devil, it's not that Israel didn't have the power of God available to them when they failed the first time. It's not that they didn't have the resources that they needed. It's that they simply lacked the heart, the faith, the love for God. And so when we fail to overcome the devil, it's not a problem of God's power or of his provisions. You know, this was a very easy battle, it seems. I mean, it only takes up three verses. The people take some of the Israelites captive. They make this vow to God. They destroy them. But remember, again, these were the people that had defeated them very easily in the past when they did not have God's approval. So again, the problem was they weren't listening to God. They weren't thinking about God's power, who God was, and what he had promised. So again, when we fail to overcome sin, when there are obstacles in our faith that we just can't seem to get past, it's not the problem that God is not supplying everything that's needed. It's not that God doesn't have the love for us that is needed for God to involve himself. Again, it's it's the problem of our own faith and whether or not we're really going to give heed to listen and utilize the resources God has given. 
And I think a part of this too, did you notice in verse 1 what the Canaanites did here? This wasn't like a national battle that took place at first. It seems like, you know, again, as large as the nation of Israel was, that the Canaanites came out and attacked a section of the nation, took some of them captive. When people kidnap others, do kidnappers target the strong or the weak? The powerful or the defenseless? Who do they target? So who do you imagine here were the people who were being kidnapped among the Israelites? Most likely it would have been people like their children being kidnapped. I think if we think about it that way, that gives a greater sense of motivation to conquer these people who had kidnapped their children, the vulnerable, the defenseless. Um, I have a friend who no longer lives in Atlanta, just kind of by way of illustrating this. Um, He lived in Atlanta. He lives in Kentucky now. Um, But we had a conversation a few years ago. Um, He had just recently moved to Atlanta, and somehow it came up, Atlanta being um, one of the number top five like sex trafficking cities in the entire world. Um, And at that time, he had toddlers, little kids, two, three years old. And so somehow this came up in the conversation. He mentioned that if his child was kidnapped by sex traffickers, if he was not able to get his child back, he would pray earnestly that his child would die so that they would not have to endure living in that nightmare, right? If we see the devil in that way, that temptation and sin, if we see things differently, right, and we really see what Satan and his desire is in deceiving us, taking us captive, we would put so much more aggression into overcoming sin. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. There's an irony here where Paul is telling Timothy to be gentle teaching people, um, but there's a very relevant point here that I think for me, um, if there is like a passage in the Bible that has helped my perspective change in kind of how I see people, how I see the lost, and how I see the devil at work, this is one of those passages that has nearly done more to shape my perspective than most others. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those for an opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and notice this, notice this, and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I think if we think about this perspective, that Satan has taken children of God, people who belong to him, and deceived them, held them captive, brought them into bondage, God's aggressive effort to 1 John 3, 8, destroy the works of the devil, to have us teach, to encourage us to be more bold, to have us not give in to temptation and be enslaved to sin, all of that has a greater sense of context when we use these illustrations to understand more the battle that we're facing in a more relevant context, right? So, verse 4, back in Numbers 21. 
This is one of the well-known stories in the book of Numbers. At least it should be, because Jesus in John 3, he referred very directly to this in a conversation with Nicodemus. We'll talk about that more um, a little bit further into the point. But let's read verses 4 through 9 here um, into the next section of their wandering. Again, Numbers 21, verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, for the people became impatient because of the journey. Okay, really quick, time out. So back in chapter 20, hopefully this is on the same page, chapter 20, verse 20 and 21, Israel wanted to pass through Edom, which would have been like a shortcut, and Edom refused to let them go through. And in verse 20, notice it says, Edom came out against him with a heavy force and a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. Like literally everybody Israel encounters either attacks them, stands against them, or tries to curse them, which is what the Moabites try to do in the next chapter. Anyway, moving on. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 20, 21. So they take this big detour. The people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many, of the, many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. It shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Very unusual. Um, and we'll talk about some of the unique qualities of this as we continue on here. But Israel becomes impatient because of the journey. And they make their final complaint in the wilderness. So there's more complaining that happens in Exodus between Egypt and Sinai. But in terms of the book of Numbers, there are seven complaints starting from chapter 11. This is the final complaint of the wilderness. The first complaint in the book of Numbers is in chapter 11. And if you remember, it was a complaint about food and adversity because of the journey. <laughs> So their first complaint is impatience because of the adversity and food. And then the last complaint they make is they're impatient because of the journey and food. Um, ironically, they're impatient here. And they are taking a pretty broad detour, but they are literally on the brink of finishing their journey. I mean, it is the 40th year. It's just a matter of months at this point. It's not as hopeless as they're making it seem. And God, instead of sending food which he's done before, sends snakes to bite the people. Um, this is handled a lot differently than any other time where God handled their complaints on a number of levels. Number one, every time the people in the past have complained about food or water, God gave it to them. They complained about food in Exodus, God gave them manna and quail. People complained about water in Exodus, water came from the rock. People complained about food in Numbers chapter 11, he sent them quail again, and it was... So abundant, God said it would be like it would come out of their nostrils. They complain about water. Numbers chapter 20, God gives them water. This is the first time they complain about food and God does not give them what they want. He sends them fiery serpents. There are seven complaints from chapter 11 to 21. 
Complaining and grumbling is the most common issue we see Israel giving into again and again and again and again. And I want to be careful how I say this, right? I think we all struggle with grumbling and complaining. And the point of seeing it in Israel is not just to see the issue and say like, you see, you complainers, stop it. That's enough complaining, right? But the thing is, because we see it's such a common issue, we are able to dissect the problem. And God is giving us a look under the hood to be able to change our perspective because that's, that's ultimately what it is, right? Complaining is a matter of perspective so that we can change the way that we see our circumstances and not be like the people of Israel. So I want to ask you this. Was there another way that they could have seen their circumstances where they wouldn't have complained? Was there another way? And beyond that, was there a value to their adversity that we don't get to see because of their complaining? Cultivating endurance and contentment are two of the most important and valuable qualities in our relationship with God. Cultivating patience and contentment. Do you remember when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days? And by the way, he wasn't fed with manna or bread in that 40-day period, right? He literally had nothing to eat. Did Jesus complain? And let me ask you this. Was Jesus' time of deprivation, was there a value in what he was enduring in the wilderness? Even though he wasn't directly serving anybody at that time? Even though the spotlight was not visibly on him? Like there wasn't a group of people following him around, you know, writing down what was happening. I mean, he was alone, right? Was there a value to his adversity? When we complain, there is a different way of seeing things. And the perspective that complains or grumbles overlooks the value of the treasures of wisdom that we need to gain from suffering in the present life, right? We don't have control of reality. And the Israelites didn't have control of the reality that the wilderness was just a time of deprivation. They weren't going to get everything they wanted. And if you look specifically against verse 5, they go for the low blow they bring up Egypt again. I think this is like the people in God is like marriage. If somebody in an argument says, why, did we, why don't we just get divorced? Why did we get married in the first place? Like, wow, that's going for the lowest blow you can possibly go for, right? And that's, that's certainly not going to help anything, right? They bring up Egypt. And so on that, it's easy to take the people out of Egypt. Well, I mean, was it easy? But it's one thing to take the people out of Egypt. It's a whole other thing, right? A whole other thing to get Egypt out of the people, right? The people were out of Egypt, but it's like, man, every time they're uncomfortable, where do they go? They go back to Egypt. Even if they didn't bodily go back there, they certainly went back there in their minds and in their hearts. So God sends snakes against the people. I don't know how you visualize this, but um, I think when I was younger, I literally thought the snakes were on fire. So I thought like these snakes that were on fire were like coming and biting the people and I don't think that's the point I think the fieriness is either their color that they may have been like bronze looking snakes or just their bite was a burning poisonous venomous thing it obviously caused people to die right so there was a poison in their bite but it's, it's not the idea that these were like literally snakes on fire being sent to the people and how this is handled again is very unique so 
to my investigation, this is the first time Israel confesses sin like this. The closest thing is Numbers 14 when they went to fight the Canaanites without God's approval, which seems like a very shallow, misguided confession. They say, we've sinned, we're going to go fight the Canaanites. And Moses is like, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. That's not how this is going to go. Don't go. And then they they go anyway. So I'm not sure if that was really a, a true confession, right? I think what we have here, though, is a true confession. And if it is a true confession, it's the only true confession we've gotten out of Israel. This is the first time also they have asked Moses to intercede for them. So never before have they actually gone to Moses saying, you intercede for us. We're sorry. Please cause this to stop. Now, Moses has interceded before, but not because the people approach him like this. I say all that to say, even though Israel is committing the same sin that they've committed over and over and should know better, I'll say at least there seems to be a progression in how this is being handled. And I do think oftentimes the way that we reflect on our sin, how we humble ourselves when we sin, how we let that motivate us toward God can do a lot to change our hearts and uproot the seed that led us to that sin in the first place. So God tells Moses to build this bronze snake and set it on a standard so that if anyone looked at it, they would live. Now, another interesting thing. Leviticus, before Numbers, commanded that animal sacrifice needed to be made if sins were committed by anybody to receive forgiveness. Was animal sacrifice given for atonement for any of the sins of the wilderness so far? Actually, not once. There's not a single time in Numbers where God commands an animal sacrifice to atone for anyone's sin. It is always by method of Moses' intercession that atonement is made. So again, very unusual, right? That a bronze serpent, something that's not been done before, and certainly the sacrificial system didn't instruct this to be done, but this is, this is what God said to be done, for Moses to build this, and if anyone looked at it, they would be cured. I want you to imagine this. Imagine somebody in Israel is bit by the serpent. How do you think they would respond if they knew the, gold, the bronze serpent was set up? Would they stop and say, well, I know I'm dying, but I mean, how does a bronze statue transfer some kind of healing power into my body? I mean, how mechanically and scientifically would that even work? Like, how does this change the chemistry of the poison? How does this get it out of my body? Like, do you imagine that somebody who's on the brink of death from poison is going to stop to kind of try to scientifically break this down and you know, this has to make sense first before I do it, and why not sacrifice? I thought in Leviticus that God said an animal, so why, why is God doing this now, right? I think this relates to Jesus' illustration in John chapter 3, right? Jesus' death on the cross to the Jewish people was going to be something extremely unusual, something unheard of. Now, it should make sense for the sacrifices and for the blood of atonement, but a human being dying for the sake of sin and atonement is very unusual. And I've had Bible studies with people where I'm sitting down with someone and we're needing to study baptism, and their thought process is, well, I just don't understand. You know, how does getting dunked in water, you know, have anything to do with me being forgiven of my sins? 
And I've had conversations with people where they think, well, Jesus died like 2,000 years ago. How does the death of a man handed over for jealousy 2,000 years ago somehow relate to me so that my sins are forgiven when this happened so far away from my life in a different part of the world in a different time frame? And so what, what's the problem? I would argue the problem is a lack of conviction, of not understanding the problem. Because if you understand the problem, if God gives a solution, that's it. How it all works, the, the method of the mechanics of it all, who cares? Look at the serpent and live. Like, why would you delay? Why would you try to work your way around that? Just accept the solution, especially when it's so easy and available, right? And so in John chapter 3, ironically, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a very religious person. And when he says you need to be born again, he says, well, I don't understand how that works. Do I got to go into my mother's womb and be born all over again? And Jesus transitions into saying, you don't believe what I'm saying. And the problem is, I'm telling you something simple. And how can you believe if I tell you more if you can't even believe this first simple thing? And so then he goes into just as Moses lifted up the serpent. So if we're going to believe in Jesus, a part of that faith and belief is when Jesus says sin is a poison that destroys us. And if we do not repent and receive remission for our sins, God's way, we will die in our sins. If that convicts us, then whatever God says for a solution, that's what we're going to do. Because as I've studied with people who struggle with the mechanics of salvation, I've also studied with other people where when they see what God says, they respond to it immediately because they know they're lost. They know that they need the forgiveness of their sins and they don't want to live another second in a condition separated from God. To people like that, it's unquestionable. God says it, I do it, period. Another interesting thing about this is the image of sin, an image of the sting of sin, became the image of their salvation. The thing that was making them sick or the thing that came as a consequence of their sin became the very beacon of salvation and the cure for the consequence, right? Galatians 3 says, Christ to redeem us from the curse of the law became a curse for us. What we see with Jesus on the cross, the image of the consequence of our sin is the image of Jesus on the cross. The image of the reality of what happens when we sin how it impacts us, how it impacts God, there is no greater image than Jesus' death when he was hanging on the cross. His death is also the image of our salvation. So when we look to Jesus, we're both seeing the image of sin and its consequence, but we're also seeing the image of salvation. And what I want to leave with you with this part of Numbers 21, we too readily see sin as a comfort, a relief, a pleasure, a necessity, instead of seeing it as a painful and destructive poison. Before Jesus was taken by the crowd, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember Jesus' demeanor in the Garden? Do you remember when he said, my soul is in anguish, even to the point of death, watch and pray with me? Because Jesus anticipating the suffering on the cross was suffering in innocence the destructive poison 
that we're given freedom to not suffer because of his death. We too readily see sin as a comfort, a relief, a pleasure, and we just don't see it for what it truly is. I have a friend, um, I've mentioned him in sermon illustrations in the past. In Michigan, his father was a wild alcoholic. He was a violent alcoholic. My friend was not a Christian. Well, his parents weren't Christians. He wasn't being raised in a Christian family. As he got older, he was the popular kid in high school. His friends drank, and he wasn't a Christian. His parents didn't go to church. He had none of those values or anything. You know, I visited him one time when he was younger, and he was surrounded by people who drank, like friends who were all the cool kids, whatever. He never even took a sip. Never. You know why? It wasn't because he believed anything about the Bible. It was because he saw the trauma his family suffered by his father's alcoholism. You know why there's so much value in Jesus' death on the cross? When we suffer consequences ourselves, there's a strange thing where that actually has less power to change our behavior. You know, we can justify doing things to ourselves. We can destroy our own lives and fill our minds with delusions that everything's okay, but when we see someone we love suffering because of our decisions, you know there's just something more powerful about that? That's Jesus' death on the cross. 21 through 35. So we're skipping 10 through um, 20. And really 10 through 20 is kind of like a travel log. And it's very exciting, even though it's a lot of, you know, territories, names. Um, Verse 14 and 15, there's like this poem, song thing. Verse 17 and 18, there's another poem when they get water and it doesn't seem like there's any complaining going on or any discouragement. And so you're just getting this sense of growing momentum, getting closer and closer to the promised land and encouragement is is growing. And we get to 21 through 35 with um, Israel being rescued from Sihon and Og. So we'll go ahead and we'll read this entire section and make some comments about some lessons here after the reading. So starting in verse 21. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn off into field or vineyard. We will not drink water from wells. We will go up by the king's highway until we have passed through your border. But Sihon would not permit Israel to pass through his border. So Sihon gathered all his people and went out against Israel in the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel struck him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the sons of Ammon. For the border of the sons of Ammon was Jazer. Israel took all these cities and Israel lived in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and all her villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Verse 27, therefore those who use the Proverbs say, now just a quick time out. This is not an Israel song. This is an Amorite song. What this song is going to do is going to highlight the glory of victory of the Amorites over the Moabites to kind of emphasize these were not a weak people. These were a people who were victorious over another kingdom and Israel had victory over that other victorious kingdom. So verse 27, come to Heshbon, let it be built. So let the city of Sihon be established. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sihon. It devoured Er of Moab, the dominant heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are ruined, O people of Chemosh. 
He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sihon. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Debon. Then we have laid waste even to Nophah, which reaches to Medeba. Then Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent a spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Baashan, and Og, of, uh, and Og the king of uh, Baashan, went out with all the people, or all his people, for battle at Edrai. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they killed him and his sons with all his people until there was no remnants left him, and they possessed his land. So you probably notice um, I'm pronouncing names inconsistently. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce these names, so I just do my best. And, you know, I don't know. I don't think about it too much, and so if I pronounce it differently, just try to bear with me on that. Um, but Israel approaches the eastern side of the Jordan, so they are literally getting to their end point before Canaan. And Sihon of Heshbon, Og of Bashan, go to battle against Israel. I want to show you the territory this encompasses. So this would be like ideally what the tribes of Israel were meant to look like and the allotment that was given to them by God. On the eastern side of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh there, that whole section is the territory of Og and Sihon. And if you compare that with the western side of the Jordan, that is a very, very large plot of land that encompassed these two groups of people. And Deuteronomy, we're not going to turn here, but in Deuteronomy 2, 26 through 311, as Moses is giving his final sermons to encourage Israel as they're about to go into Canaan under Joshua's leadership, he actually reflects on these battles. And he reflects on the fact that these were strong, fortified cities, that the people had great weaponry, great fortifications, the cities were heavily walled in. And he brings up that Og was a giant that his bedstead, I'm trying to remember, like 15 feet, his bedstead of iron was about 15 feet long in like American measurements. So potentially someone that was bigger than Goliath. So just imagine how incredibly intimidating this guy was. Why does that matter? In Numbers 13, 28, when the first generation refused to go into the land, they said, we can't do it, guys. The people, their, their land, is, it's too fortified. The cities are walled in. The people are too powerful and the giants are there. Israel here overcomes fortified, walled cities, and the people descended from the giants, right? So the complaint that they had originally is dismantled. And then again, this song that seems like a very strange, random assertion, insertion, um, it's just emphasizing the Amorite strength. Like again, this, this was not some weak people disconnected from other nations. These were a powerful people who were able to conquer other nations and take land away from them permanently, right? And so this was a battle that shows that the first generation, again, it's not that God wasn't able to. It's not that God couldn't provide them with the strength they needed. And if anything, think about it. The people in the wilderness for the 40 years, I don't get the impression that they're doing push-ups out there, like lifting weights, trying to make sure they're fit enough to eventually go into the land. If anything, they'd get weaker and weaker <laughs> as they're just wandering, walking around, and yet they overcome this highly fortified groups of different peoples. So an important thing, I think, something critical. We need to accept, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter what our struggles are, 
any excuse we make for getting into sin, it's just not valid. You know, the, the temptation was too strong, or you know, it's been a part of my life for too long, and I just I, I had to, you know. Whatever it is, it's just not valid. What the first generation had to say, it sounded good. It's very convincing. I mean, they convinced nearly the entire generation to believe their lie, right? It's critical to understand when we are thinking about God, what he has given us, what Jesus has done for us, the new covenant is not just a set of new practices of worship and religious structure. It's that Jesus has brought a greater power to overcome our enemy. And we're no longer to think that, well, Satan's just too great an enemy. Or I just, I don't know, I just, I can't seem to get past it. Whatever our struggle is, no excuse is valid. And these victories would give an incredible sense of encouragement of what is to come. And I want to think about how that relates to Jesus. What made the 40 days in the wilderness so valuable? It was a taste of what was to come. Who was Jesus dealing with in the wilderness? He was dealing with Satan in the wilderness. And he overcame him through his faith. Just the simplicity of faith, trusting in God's word. That was just a taste of what was about to come through the rest of his ministry. The kingdom was about to overwhelmingly conquer. And his ministry, before his death and resurrection, casting out demons, Jesus would tell the Pharisees that casting out demons was a signal that the kingdom of God is upon you and the strong man is being overcome by someone stronger than him. And then his death and his resurrection... All of these things are just signifying what God has made available and what is to come. And you think about not only the book of Acts and what the book of Acts should mean to us of not just what happened a long, long time ago in a place far, far away, but what God has made available to people. Look at 1 John chapter 2. And this is where we'll, we'll end the lesson. Is in 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 14. You know, the people of the first generation had become convinced that they weren't strong enough, that they weren't strong enough to overcome their enemies, that God's promises weren't enough for them. And again, this, this last section of Numbers 21 proves that they believed a lie. First John 2. I want to start with um, verse 26, when John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. You know, the world wants to make Christians think that you're weak, you're worthless, you know, that you're a nobody, you're part of a group of nobodies, right? But look what John tells them. And I think with struggles that this audience was facing, this was necessary and I think necessary for us to dwell on as well. 2.12 I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You notice that last statement, he said it twice. So obviously the end of verse 14 where we ended but also kind of past the middle of verse 13. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Obviously, we need to have a great deal of respect for our weaknesses, right? And that 
You know, we're obviously not independently strong apart from God. But there's this other angle where at times it does become very necessary to remember God has made his people strong. And we aren't fighting to eventually overcome the evil one. But that if we have been baptized into Christ, we have overcome the evil one, right? And we need to embrace those truths and not let the world or Satan or our own hearts deceive us into thinking any differently, right? We need to embrace what God has given and to embrace the promises that lie ahead of us that are all connected with the momentum of victories that we've already inherited and already began. Victories that were established in the death and resurrection of our Lord Christ. If you're here this morning and you have not gained a part in that victory, when the Canaanites of Jericho knew Israel was right on their border, they tried to fortify their city, they knew that Israel was coming to conquer them, they were obliterated. And it was just Rahab who was delivered because of her faith. The reality is the world is going to face the judgment of God. The world will be judged by fire. And those who do not know God, who have not come to obey the gospel, they will be condemned with Satan and his angels in eternal fire. And that's just a reality that we need to deal with and accept. And as much as that reality should move us to repentance, there's also the reality that we've been talking about in the lesson to, to bring it to a close, that Jesus has overcome the enemy and that as simple as it was for people to be delivered from the snake bite, God has created an incredibly simple method of deliverance, looking to Jesus, believing in him, and repenting from things that just divide and destroy and being immersed in water for the remission of our sins to be buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him in newness of life. If there's anything we can do for you in your relationship with God this morning, we reserve this time as we stand and sing the invitation song.